Leading the way to the Red Planet, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Hope is on its way to Mars. We'll enjoy a conversation with the two leaders of the Emirates Mars mission in a few minutes. China's Tianwen-1 was also successfully launched a few days ago. And by the time the first of you hear this, Perseverance, NASA's next Mars rover, should be hours away from its liftoff. The agency's Thomas Serbukin and Mimi Ong, leader of the Mars Helicopter Project, are moments away. Down the line, we'll hear from Bruce Betts about Comet Neowise and the other wonders waiting for you in the night sky. The July 24 edition of The Downlink is topped by a view of two worlds that aren't from around here— In fact, these young gas giants circle a star that is 300 light-years away. The image was captured by the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope in Chile. Yeah, that's its name, the Very Large Telescope. It was augmented with a coronagraph that blocked most of the star's light, revealing those planets. Launch of the James Webb Space Telescope has been delayed again as the pandemic continues to take its toll, and not just on us humans. NASA is now looking at October 31st of next year. That's right, the most powerful and ambitious space telescope ever will get a spooky Halloween send-off. And astronauts Bob Benkin and Chris Cassidy have completed the power system upgrade of the International Space Station with a final spacewalk. Benkin and Doug Hurley are set to return to Earth in their SpaceX Crew Dragon capsule on August 2nd. As always, you'll find much, much more at planetary.org downlink. And you can sign up to receive our weekly newsletter for free. Remember Mimi Ong? We talked back in July of last year with the project manager for the first flying machine headed to another planet. Ong participated in a July 20th virtual event presented by Space Foundation. Titled Roving the Red Planet, the webinar also featured past planetary radio guests NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, Jet Propulsion Lab Director Michael Watkins, and NASA's Associate Administrator for its Science Mission Directorate, Thomas Zerbukin. We'll hear from Zerbukin in a few minutes, but first, here's some of what Ong had to say. There are three technologies being demonstrated on Mars 2020. The terrain relative navigation for safer landing in hazardous terrain, MOXIE, which converts uh, carbon dioxide to oxygen for in-situ resource utilization, and the Mars helicopter. So NASA performs technology demonstrations, tech demos, to demonstrate advanced capabilities for spacecraft for future missions. The Mars helicopter tech demo will be the first ever to attempt a rotorcraft flight at Mars. In fact, um, we as human beings have never flown a rotorcraft, a helicopter, anywhere outside of uh, our own Earth's atmosphere. So really a rights rather moment, but on another planet. So for NASA, the Mars technology demonstration, Mars helicopter tech demo is motivated by the potential to add the aerial dimension to space exploration. Today, we explore Mars uh, from spacecraft in orbit and rovers roving on the surface. In the future, there'll be astronauts on the surface. And the helicopter can serve as scout for rovers and astronauts. 
helicopter can also allow us to reach places that are simply not accessible today uh, without being able to fly. It's not easy to build a rotorcraft to fly at Mars. So <laughs> the atmosphere is really thin. I mean, compared to Earth's, it's about 1%. So a vehicle to fly in Mars has to be uh, really light and it has to you know, spin really fast. The helicopter we've built is named Ingenuity. And Ingenuity has a rotor system that's 1.2 meter in diameter. And the entire vehicle has to weigh under two kilograms. That's about four pounds. So to build this vehicle that weighs about four pounds while having the capability to fly and land autonomously and to survive and operate autonomously at Mars, right? Remotely operated from Earth. That's a huge challenge. It's a tiny package with tons of um, capability packed. The day our vehicle weighed in, it weighed in a hair under 1.8 kilogram. That was a huge day for us. Since then, uh, we've performed the helicopter test flights in a simulated Mars atmosphere in the 25-foot diameter space simulator chamber here at JPL. And very importantly, Perseverance has tested deploying us from the belly pan of the Perseverance rover successfully to the surface. So at this point, uh, we've performed all the tests that we can on Earth. And the next step really is now to do it in the real environment this Mars helicopter ingenuity is designed for in space vacuum as soon as after launch and finally on the surface of Mars. We have a 30 Martian day window to do our flight experiments. So we have up to five flight plans to be performed in that time period. And the first and foremost, the most important flight for us, for our team, is the very first flight where we'll repeat the flight that we have tested multiple times in our test chamber here on Earth. And then after getting that first flight, then we will be performing uh, more bolder and bolder flights of higher heights and further distances. So here we are, exciting days ahead. Helicopter is about to be launched. Uh, our team is thrilled. It's truly the high risk, high reward phase of our project. High risk because every step forward, every event that we have will be a first time event, right? First in space vacuum and then in the environment of Mars. But more importantly, high reward. All of that experiences will be feeding into future, much more capable rotorcraft. For our team, that is the ultimate reward that we've worked really, really, really hard for. Uh, I came to NASA inspired to, for the opportunity to contribute to space exploration. And along the way, I also fell in love with making first of a kind capabilities work for increasingly autonomous advanced space systems. Here today is an example of that dream come true. Here we are on a historical mission, perseverance, working on a tech demo, Mars Helicopter Ingenuity. Thank you so much. Mars Helicopter Project Manager Mimi Ong. The tiny whirlybird is now making its way to the Red Planet in the belly of the Perseverance rover. Thomas Urbuchen always speaks eloquently and with great passion about our exploration of the solar system and beyond. Here are a few excerpts from his contribution to Space Foundation's webinar. Uh, before I get started, I wanted to congratulate uh, the United Arab Emirates for their successful launch of the HOPE mission to Mars. Along with uh, their Japanese launch partners, that's a truly amazing accomplishment, and we're happy to join them soon with Perseverance because 
together, hope and perseverance are essential ingredients of exploration. It's truly an exciting decade ahead of us as the entire world sends missions to Mars to study and explore the red planet. Next week, the United States returns to Mars. It's the next step in putting together a puzzle we've been working on for centuries, which has accelerated in the last 55 years, beginning with the first flyby of Mars by Mariner 4. The world's eyes were opened when the Viking landers sent back transformative pictures of the surface of another planet for the first time. And the world got to see for itself the color Mars red with its own eyes. And we saw how it resembled our great American desertscapes. And we wondered anew what our two planets might have in common, where all the ingredients necessary to life, carbon, other elements, water, energy, were they present on Mars and had the zoo produced microbes as it did on Earth? But did unhappy celestial occurrences for the neighbors snuff out that agent's life as we strive here on flourish here on Earth as life is an important part of our planet? These are questions scientists have pondered for decades and more. So now we send Perseverance, the most capable robotic scientist ever sent to the surface of another planet, to the most promising place we could determine from here that could have supported life an ancient river delta by what might once have been a huge lake. The Perseverance rover builds on the legacy of NASA's Mars exploration program and joins a fleet that right now includes a rover, a lander, and multiple orbiters. It's our ninth mission to land and our fifth rover. Perseverance is our first mission to have astrobiology, in this case, to search for ancient life as part of its top-line science goals. That current fleet of Mars, including the rover's uh, planet-made uh, Curiosity, which is still roving five years in, and all the missions we have sent historically, these other missions have all found things that led us to keep going down this path, having found organics, methane, signs of water in the past, and even now, perseverance suites of instruments will take the next step. Perseverance is also the bridge between science and human exploration that demonstrates how the two can support and reinforce each other. It will do incredible things until human scientists with their own unique perspectives and ability to make science judgments are able to walk the surface. I look forward to that personally, many of us do. So what will Perseverance do? The planet's story is told in parts through its climate and meta, will tell us more about the weather on Mars and the prevalence of dust and how it affects human missions. RIMFAX will probe beneath the surface, perhaps finding ice deposits human missions could use. SuperCam and MassCam will survey and study the environment and turn amazing images. Basically, Perseverance will bring all human senses to Mars, will sense the air around it, see and scan the horizon, hear the planet with microphones on the surface for the first time, feel it as it picks up samples in, to cash, perhaps even taste it in a sense as pixel and other instruments sample the chemistry and the rocks and soil around it. As humans prepare for the greatest adventure uh, here in, in person exploration of Mars, our robots can help. Moxie will help demonstrate how we might live off the land by converting carbon dioxide into oxygen that we can breathe, or for rocket fuel, 
Sherlock, in addition to searching for organics, uses spacesuit material for calibration, which will also help us learn uh, how it degrades on Mars. And technologies such as Medley and Terrain Relative Navigation, TRN, will help us uh, help our rover to the surface and also provide data that is important to landing future human missions on Mars. Jim is going to talk a lot about this and this important context of human exploration as well. A helicopter named Ingenuity will demonstrate powered flight on another planet for the first time. I really look forward to seeing this Martian Wright Brothers moment. Uh, Mimi will tell us more about this. I'm just so excited about it. And Perseverance is going to prepare for humanity as long last to hold a piece of Mars uh, in our hand, not just a meteorite from somewhere, but a piece of an actual surface with its geologic context, analyzed with the best instruments there for us to study back on Earth, the best instruments humanity has available to themselves, not only today, but also in the future. This is the first leg of the humanity's first ever round trip to another planet. And this amazing explorer could not have been ready for launch in this transient window we have without the perseverance of teams across the country and the world who struggled and sacrificed through the global pandemic to keep their sights on the, this milestone of humanity. Their work and this mission embodied the agencies and our nation spirit of persevering even in the most challenging of situations, providing inspiration and advancing science and exploration and the mission itself personifies the human ideal of persevering towards the future. Mike is going to tell us more about this, especially. Perseverance carries our hopes and dreams, the names of 11 million people from across the world who sent in their names to go with us under the plaque. We read Explore as one. I just want to tell you, both of my parents who are no longer with us, their names are there. That is really meaningful to me from that perspective as well as also my family who's here, who's all of their names are on these on this list. And Perseverance carries the goodwill of the entire space community that we and other nations all send missions to Mars this decade. It reinforces NASA's commitment to working with our international partners to accomplish stunning achievements in science, technology, and exploration. So when Perseverance launches, it takes us all. Every one of us will have a chance to learn from and be inspired by this mission. Anytime we attempt something that pushes us to the next threshold is a time to celebrate. It is a big moment, a milestone for humanity that we all share. We explore and discover together, and together we persevere. Thomas Serbukin, NASA Associate Administrator for the Science Mission Directorate. We're grateful to Space Foundation. We've got a link to their complete Roving the Red Planet webinar on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. We're far from done. After a quick break, we'll head for the United Arab Emirates for a great conversation with Sara Al-Amiri and Amran Sharaf, leaders of the Emirates Mars mission and the Hope Orbiter. Stay with us. Where did we come from? Are we alone in the cosmos? These are the questions at the core of our existence. And the secrets of the universe are out there, waiting to be discovered. But to find them, we have to go into space. We have to explore. This endeavor unites us. Space exploration truly brings out the best in us. Encouraging people from all walks of life 
to work together, to achieve a common goal, to know the cosmos and our place within it. This is why the Planetary Society exists. Our mission is to give you the power to advance space science and exploration. With your support, we sponsor innovative space technologies, inspire curious minds, and advocate for our future in space. We are the Planetary Society. Join us. We featured a launch party on last week's show. One of the many voices you heard belonged to Her Excellency Sara Bint Youssef Alamiri. Sara is Deputy Project Manager and Science Lead on the Emirates Mars Mission, or EMM. She's also Minister of State for Advanced Sciences in the UAE, and she has been named the new President of the UAE Space Agency. And those are just a few of her titles and accomplishments. Joining Sara on this week's show is Amran Sharaf. Amran is the EMM Project Director at the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center. He has overseen every aspect of this ambitious mission, including the transition from a focus on Earth observation satellites to development of interplanetary missions. You're going to hear the term MEPAG used. That's the Mars Exploration Program Analysis Group. Sara and Amran, thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio. It is a great honor to be able to speak to you so soon after the beginning of this mission, the Emirates Mars mission uh, with its Hope spacecraft. I know I speak on behalf of, of our audience and everyone, all my colleagues at the Planetary Society, when I congratulate you on this terrific start for this uh, mission to the Red Planet. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having us, Matt. It's a pleasure for us to be on and to talk about the start of the Hope Mars mission. I have to join NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, who we heard on the show last week, and many other space experts and officials around the world who are also congratulating you and your team. I mean, I'm sure you have been asked this question too many times, but how does it feel to be on your way to uh, to Mars? Uh, Sara, why don't you start again? So it's been over six years of intense work, as you all know, it's challenging to get a spacecraft built to Mars, and it's even more challenging to do it in six years. It's It's been a mixture of emotions across the board, um, even after launch, leading up to launch. Now that we have the spacecraft there, it's a roller coaster of emotions where you you hit a high every time you achieve a milestone, but you know there's another challenge coming up. And it's just a series of challenges that will continue on until we get to orbit around Mars, until we get to, to starting our science operations and getting scientific data down and start analyzing that. The emotional uh, journey that we're on at the moment will continue on for the next few months. Amran, a slight variation on that question. Uh, how did it feel? Was there a sense of relief when your spacecraft turned toward the big antennas and, and started to say, I'm feeling fine, I'm on my way to Mars? I wouldn't say like a full relief, but I mean, it felt good. Uh, I was happy that actually the, the spacecraft is safe and it's communicating with, with us. It's a long journey. It's a seven-month journey. Uh, we have the Mars mm. orbit inspection, a very, very critical uh, phase in the project that's going to take place uh, in February 2021. It felt good, but not fully relieved. <laughs> what is the current status of the spacecraft, Amran? Uh, the spacecraft is uh, safe, it's sound, uh, it's healthy. Uh, it started its, its cruise towards Mars uh, with monitoring, monitoring the spacecraft on a continuous basis, uh, 24-7 uh, for now. 
as we are commissioning the, the spacecraft as part of the LEO. This process will stay like this for about uh, two weeks, maybe. Later on, we'll switch to, to like normal operations in which we'll be having our operators conducted uh, or contacting the spacecraft uh, twice uh, a week uh, for six hours uh, every contact. So far, everything looks good, and we're happy with, with the status of the spacecraft. Are there any significant milestones during this cruise phase as, as HOPE makes its way to Mars? Yes, uh, we do have a very important operation that will take place about 10 days from now, the TCM, Trajectory Correction Maneuver. We have a series of, of seven TCMs taking place between launch and arrival to Mars, uh, which are very critical for us. So this is, I would say, the, the most critical operation that will be taking place. And it will be taking place about seven times throughout our journey. So plenty to keep you busy, it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> I know, and I'm sure you know, that arrival at Mars, whether it's orbital insertion, as you'll be doing, or heading down to the surface is thrilling, but can also be terrifying. And, and this is your first time doing this. What steps have you taken, or, or will you be taking, to uh, make sure things go smoothly? Yeah, as you mentioned, it's it's a very uh, risky uh, operation. When it comes to risk, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the best way to, to, to mitigate those risks, especially with these missions, and especially if it's a platform that you developed, uh, it's not a platform that's been bought or something uh, that's been, been been used before, uh, is by testing it, testing it, and testing it. So mm. uh, before launching, we had a lot of scenarios that simulated the, the Mars orbit insertion and saw how the spacecraft reacted to these scenarios. For now, what we can do is, again, just monitor the spacecraft and make sure that we are on the right trajectory. By the time we reach Mars, make sure that the softwares are up to date, the, the, the data that the spacecraft is using to, to conduct the maneuvers uh, are up to date. Whether it's a nominal scenario, whether it's a scenario that had an error in it and saw how the spacecraft reacted to that error and, and, and fixed uh, that error. What happens after you achieve your initial orbit at Mars? There are some further adjustments that have to be made before Sarah and, and her science team can start doing their work, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll stay in the capture orbit for about a month or two. Uh, it depends uh, on the status of the spacecraft. During that time, we, we again check the status of, of all the subsystems, uh, of the instruments, and make sure that the instruments are actually uh, working well. The calibration will take place. Uh, and then after that, we shift into our science orbit. And again, we'll have to check the status of the instruments again and calibrate it for the, uh, for the science orbit that it will be operating from. And once that's done, uh, and we check the validity of the, of the data that we are receiving uh, from the spacecraft, we have basically that the science team will be able to take that data and, and use it and distribute it to the rest of the world to also use it in their studies. Sarah, let me turn to you. If you're like other mission scientists that uh, that I know, I expect you'll be going a bit crazy as you wait through all of this uh, to begin uh, gathering data and, and doing the science that HOPE was going to enable. A large part of what we're doing as a science team at the moment is the scientists have actually been working on what we're calling the path to science closure, and that's analyzing the data uh, that we will get from the HOPE probe from about a year and a half now. So all the models that need to go into play, visualization tools, certain studies that need to, to take place have already been in development. And we've utilized either data that has been captured from the instrument on the ground, or sometimes, especially for us on the Emirates side, utilized a lot of training data from other missions that somewhat will capture uh, some form of data that is similar 
uh, to the Emirates Mars mission. And we've been able to work on developing capabilities through that. Also, the processing uh, is very important. So the instrument scientists on the team are currently working on the, on the data pipeline, ensuring that we're able to process the data to a level with which scientists can, can take it and analyze it. And they'll be working in conjunction with the engineering team through crews, because there's a few maneuvers that need to happen with regards to the instruments. And also in capture orbit, we'll be, we'll be collecting data while we're in capture orbit, transitioning into science. Work on the science team at the moment is ramping up. And the team is now really looking forward to getting their hands on the data. This is such an important point. And I think a lot of uh, people who otherwise consider themselves space enthusiasts don't realize the level of work that has to go in, not just by the engineers behind the mission, but the scientists in preparing to uh, get the data for, as you said, months and years before that data starts to flow. Absolutely. A lot of people used to say, so the science team's work starts um, after launch when you get into science orbit. That's absolutely not the case. We started very early on on the mission together with the engineering team. That's how you scope the requirements. You start with objectives of what you want to study of the planet and you start breaking that down into uh, the requirements that engineers then go and design develop a mission for we've been working on this mission even more closely uh, with our system engineering team our spacecraft developers all the instrument teams um, both on the engineering and science side to get to the point that we're at mission designers so even how you capture the data how often do you want to get that do you do you want to cover which areas of mars at which resolution. All of this is defined very early on by the science team. And before you launch, you need to verify that the instruments are functioning according to plan. And then again, after you launch, you need to ensure that a lot of the design and development work goes into place so that you're able to get the right data sets. That's all the, the role of the science team that's very well integrated in the overall uh, mission and, and starts from day one and uh, stays on to well after decommissioning to release data. Is it fair to call Hope Mars's first weather satellite? Yes, we'll be providing the first holistic view of the Martian weather throughout an entire year and cover the gap in knowledge that we have. And that's the transitions from the day to night cycle. So it's every time of the day, we'll be able to cover all of Mars in roughly a 10-day span. So this gives us a much better understanding of the weather system on Mars. We also get to correlate how much impact does the weather have on atmospheric loss. Could you go over briefly, because I know there's much more detail on the mission website, and we will link to that website and other resources on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. But what are the instruments that HOPE carries that will be uh, collecting this data? So we carry three different instruments to, to carry the data. All three instruments are scientific instruments. The first two, which is the Emirates Mars Infrared Spectrometer and the Emirates Exploration Imager, are providing the weather uh, data for us. So they'll be looking entirely at the lower atmosphere of Mars. That's how, where weather occurs. They'll be capturing data about dust, water vapor, ice clouds, ozone, so that we're able to fully characterize what happens in the lower atmosphere. We also have a second instrument, which is the Emirates Mars Ultraviolet Spectrometer. That is looking at how far out hydrogen and oxygen extends into the atmosphere. It focuses at, at the exosphere of Mars. The other aspect of this mission, which is our third objective, is we want to understand if something happens in the lower atmosphere of Mars, for example, if there's a dust storm, how does that impact atmospheric loss? What does it do with, with escape rates of hydrogen and oxygen? 
And we're able to do that using the EMUSE instrument that also looks at the thermosphere and measures carbon monoxide and oxygen and provides us that link between upper and lower atmosphere so that we can have an overall view of what role does Mars play in the loss of its atmosphere? And we already have an understanding of what role space plays in the, in the loss of Mars's atmosphere. So that can provide us a, a better understanding of climate change on Mars and atmospheric loss on the planet. And hopefully in the larger perspective of things, and this is something that was vital to this mission, to be complementary to other studies on Mars. In the larger perspective of things, it will help us better understand how the Martian atmosphere went from a much denser and wetter one to a, um, a dry and very thin atmosphere. Complimentary indeed, because of course, uh, with what you've been describing, you've made me think of the MAVEN mission that we've also covered pretty extensively on this show. Would you say that uh, MAVEN uh, will definitely be complimented uh, and maybe its work will be amplified by what HOPE may be helping us to learn? So it's not only the MAVEN mission. You can take several other missions, including ones that, for example, cover on the polar orbit and they cover the Martian atmosphere um, at a higher resolution than our mission. And then you've got the landers that are on the surface that cover quite extensively local weather in a very localized place. It fits in very well in the overall science. And the reason it does that is because we utilize the report that MEPAG usually releases on scientific goals for exploring Mars and been able to find gaps within that that no other mission is designing for. And the purpose of that is that we want to send a purely scientific mission that doesn't replicate other missions to add on to the scientific findings. And it helps our team get the full experience. It is our first mission, yes, but we wanted our team to learn because we're building capabilities and capacity and therefore to learn they need to go through the entire process of learning in things that are unknown and defining science objectives in areas that you're not 100% sure what your outcome is going to be. Now, what will be interesting for me personally is taking what we get in terms of findings and then having that spin out more questions. Hmm. And that for me is what exploration is all about. When your one answer builds into or translates into several other questions to be asked about Mars and it continuously pushes forward unlocking all the all the mysteries. Boy, that's science for you, isn't it? Amran, let me turn back to you. Uh, space communication, uh, deep space communication especially, always a big challenge. How are you going to be getting uh, Sara's data back here to Earth and sending commands to the spacecraft? What we use is an expert antenna. Uh, that we have on board uh, our spacecraft uh, to communicate with the spacecraft and also to uh, send commands and uh, receive data and telemetries. Uh, we're utilizing the deep space uh, network, uh, NASA's deep space network. We thought instead of us building everything from A to Z, it was more about utilizing existing uh, platforms and infrastructure around the world to deliver this mission. Command and control room in Dubai is it's connected to, to the DSN. That's how we communicate with it. And as you mentioned, it's a big challenge. Uh, as we move further away from Earth, the delay in communication increases. And the, by, by the time we reach Mars, the delay is going to be between about 15 to 20 minutes, mm. which adds bigger challenges to, to the operations and to, to what we mentioned earlier, the Mar Mars orbit insertion, in which that process will have to take place autonomously and on its own. Basically, we find out about it if, if we succeeded or not 20 minutes later. Yeah, always a challenge. The spacecraft definitely needs to be smarter than, let's say, spacecrafts orbiting Earth. 
An MS Mars mission was at least five times more complex than the previous missions that we worked on at the center. So the challenge here was also not just the, the fact that it had to be smarter, but also for us to understand how smarter it needs to be. And also at the same time, build a spacecraft or design it or get the knowledge uh, and understanding of how to design such a smart spacecraft. Uh, so that was also a challenge for the team. Sarah, let me switch gears here and, and come back to you uh, as we talk about the other reasons this mission is taking place. Of course, the chance to gather unique data at Mars is exciting and very important, but it, it's those other reasons the UAE has taken on this challenge that I, I, I want to turn to, beginning with the name you chose for the spacecraft. Is, is this mission all about hope? This mission is all about hope. Um, at the time that we started this mission in late 2013, the Middle East was known notoriously for all the unrest across various countries. And most of it, if you dig down deep to the root cause of it, was that youth weren't getting the necessary opportunities that they that they were looking for. Mm. We come from a region that's made up of 100 million people under the age of 35. It got to a point where the energy and the creativity of those people were being used in the wrong groups and for the wrong reasons. It was very important for us to, to bring another, another purpose to work for. And this mission was developed from the very beginning to be run completely by those under 35, done in a certain way that it has a scientific purpose. So we were requested to design a mission not only to get to Mars and capture an image, but to capture valid scientific data that not only develops our science community, but is able to benefit science communities, be it in the Arab region or around the world, and provide a, another way to look at how to advance countries and where to put the energy of the youth in and to provide opportunities for people and how to create them. We never had people that worked on planetary exploration missions prior to this mission. Seven years ago, the jobs that we have today were not there. The experience that has been captured by the team members that have been through this program has never been in the region. Yes, we have a lot of people who have left the region and are now working in various institutions abroad. But within the region, this is the first time such an area of knowledge is there. And what this changes, and that's where hope factors in, and even more than that, it's the hope that transforms into expanding possibilities, is when you see that happening. When you put together an audacious goal that people very early on doubted it would ever see the light of day and, and deliver on it as promised, within the timeline promised, within the budget promised, and with the dedication of the team, working in conjunction with our, with our knowledge partners across the world. That has sent a strong message from what I've seen personally from the people around me of various ages just in the Emirates. And we've heard from the first time from people from around the Arab world asking questions on what does change really mean? How do you create opportunities? What are the possibilities out there? And it's this dialogue that has been quite important for this mission is to let people think of a different possibility and hope for a better life and a more stable life. This must be very gratifying then to see this, and, and there's good evidence for it. I'm, I'm grateful to your colleague, Alexander McNabb, for getting us together, but he also 
gave me these great background materials about the mission and your work, including a report by University College London about the impact of the mission. The report contains this terrific infographic that I have in front of me. It it quantifies many of the mission's social, educational, and cultural benefits. Do you know the one I'm talking about? It's really very impressive. Yes, and that has been something that we've had from the get-go. So we've had an outreach team that has been part of this mission very early on. And we've catered, I think, at some point to children as young as three years old, Mm. all the way to postgraduate education. And there's been dedicated programs across the board for those. And we will continue those and expand them on to the region. But something that's also important that's in the University College London report that comes to our the, the objective that the UAE started a planetary exploration mission in the first place, and that was how do you build experience in an area that do- does not exist within the country? And how do you build capabilities around that? And how do you expand the capacity that you have? And what this mission allowed us is to create a model by which we design and develop a project or a mission that has a very clear end outcome. And at the same time, within the process of that design and development, you're transferring on experience and you're developing capabilities by sharing knowledge across nations. And what this helps you to do is to not reinvent the wheel, to learn from the experience of others, more importantly, to learn from the tacit knowledge that other people have had. And that's something you can never be taught on a book and you can never read it and learn it from anywhere except by going through the development with someone who has gone through it before. There's very small nuances in design and development that people have learned throughout the years that have come from failing on other programs or doing things in a certain way on other programs that have informed the path forward. What the report provided us was a sanity check. Is this model the right model by which we can go about as a nation to develop new industries? Because what we're working on for the next 10 years is to establish new economic sectors within the country and to increase the impact of scientific research within the country and increase the, uh, the capabilities and capacity of the uh, science community overall. And the purpose for that is about 20 years from now, demand for oil for energy will start declining. And that is a portion of our economy. That's not entirely our economy, but that is still a significant portion of our economy. And it's very important for us to expand on on the methodologies by which you can establish new sectors and be able to do that in the correct method. So in some way, this has been an experiment in policymaking and, and setting forth a method by which you can develop new sectors in a country. Would that all nations uh, took the long view that the UAE appears to be taking with this project and uh, a goal that really stretches over 100 years. I note that just over a third of your team members are women. And I'm sorry to say that I think that may surprise some people outside the UAE and the Arab world, but I hope it's a pleasant surprise. I've heard that quite a lot um, as a surprise. For us, it's I think it's just a natural um, progression that that is over 30%. The reason for that is 56% of those that enter into STEM fields today are women. Um, so you have gender parity when it comes to the input. And 70% of university graduates overall are women. So um, we've been lucky enough as a, as a young organization that has just been established since 2006 to bring people on 
who are the best and brightest and most passionate of minds to work on this project, regardless of gender. It was never something that was put sort of as a criteria. And then some people do assume that that was the case. It was just the best minds out there that are part of this program and part of this development pro- process. You're both relatively young people. Amran, here you are, the project director for a Mars mission. I suspect you may be the youngest ever. Um, it sounds like that fits into some of what we've heard from Sarah. I don't know if I'm the youngest ever project director of Mars mission, but if I am, that's a big honor, to be honest. <laughs> I think uh, so, yeah. But as you know, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, yes, we, we are a young team that worked on this mission and that has been given this responsibility by, by the UAE government to deliver and to, to execute this, this project. However, we shouldn't forget that also we worked with our partners, our knowledge transfer par- partners at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, which had experienced people uh, with, with understanding and background in these space missions. So this this the combination of, of the youth, of the young, and the combination of the experienced working together as one team, I think was... Uh, a major factor in us being able to come up with, in, with this new model and approach of doing things, at the same time delivering the, the mission with the limited resources we had when it comes to time frame and also the budget. Mm. Uh, one, one thing that the UAE government was very clear with us at the beginning, uh, they said, don't buy it, build it. However, learn from others, don't start from scratch. Mm. Work with others closely, go through a knowledge transfer program, and deliver something that's new and unique, uh, a new model of execute, executing such missions that is uh, more innovative, uh, that is more efficient, that's more effective, uh, and, and a model that is based on collaboration rather than competition. And, and as I said, international uh, cooperation was core to this mission and the reason why we were able to deliver it. Sounds like a pretty wise approach. Sarah, back to you. And looking away from the mission just for a, a moment or two, I'm, I'm thinking of the, your new job that you're going to move into on August 1st as president of the UAE Space Agency. Do you see that as an opportunity to, to extend the sorts of, of goals that, uh, that you've talked about for this mission? Absolutely, yes. Um, it, it has been something that the Space Agency has been um, set up to work on. And the overall space program of the Emirates is not a one-off program. We have a space agency, we've got a space center. There's an overall long-term development plan for that sector. And what is a success story for us moving forward is, one, how do you transfer this capability tangentially into other sectors? And two, how do you start building the space economy and further supporting the creation of businesses on the space sector in a different way, filling in a potential gap in the overall industry globally. This, for me, is an area that we need to seriously work on uh, over the course of the next few years. The other aspect is a program that has been launched, and it's about also uh, working with, with different people in the Arab region, hosting some of the greatest minds out there to work on design and development of spacecrafts with us in conjunction so that they can also be the voice of change within their countries. And they're able to then take their experience and be able to build upon it and build uh, spacecrafts that are quite vital when it comes to the, to the data or utilize data from spacecrafts for urban development um, and overall development of the science and technology ecosystem within their nations. Very exciting future ahead, it sounds like. I hope that as we move into this future, even the immediate future, 
that uh, we can stay in touch with both of you to talk more about the uh, Emirates uh, Mars mission, the Hope Probe, but also um, I'd love to hear more about uh, your new job when you get into it, uh, Sarah. I'm just wondering now, as we come to the end of this, where the two of you will be on that day in February when Hope arrives at Mars. In the command and control room in Dubai. Not surprising. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hopefully a a good celebration afterward. It has been a delight. Thank you so much. And congratulations once again uh, from all of us uh, who are following this mission, certainly all of us at the Planetary Society and, and listeners to this show. And the greatest of success to both of you and the entire EMM team as we head for Mars with you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. We have been talking with Her Excellency Sarah Bint Yusuf Alamiri, who was appointed as Minister of State for Advanced Sciences uh, in the United Arab Emirates. In October of 2017, she is also the Deputy Project Manager and Science Lead on the Emirates Mars Mission, EMM, where she leads the team developing and fulfilling the mission's scientific objectives, goals, instrumentation, and analysis programs. She was Programs Engineer on the Dubai Sat 1 and Dubai Sat 2 projects. She also chairs the United Arab Emirates Council of Scientists. And as we said, on August 1st, she'll become president of the UAE Space Agency. Uh, Sarah, I got to bring up something that you mentioned before we started recording. A certain uh, gentleman that I work for apparently played a role in inspiring you toward this career. Yes, I grew up watching Bill Nye the Science Guy. (laughs) Um, <laughs> he brought science to life to me. So um, it's, it was really interesting just growing up watching that and, and having science brought to your household, not having it the typical textbook science that you study. And that has expanded just my understanding of, of how much impact science has had in our daily lives and what you can do with it and what you can create with it. It's an absolute pleasure to be on this podcast. The science guy is going to be very proud when I tell him about this. Amran Sharaf is the Emirates Mars Mission Project Director at the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center in the UAE. He and his team are responsible for developing, launching, and operating the HOPE spacecraft that we've been talking about. Amran has worked on the project from the start and developed all the necessary capabilities and, and partnerships at the center. He oversaw this transition from Earth observation satellites to a center that develops interplanetary exploration missions. Amran, I have to note that you got your bachelor's degree from my father's alma mater, the University of Virginia. So go Cavaliers. Go Cavaliers. <laughs> and we will go on to talking with Bruce Betts for this week's edition of What's Up in, in just a moment. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society runs our light sail program in addition i don't know you're the go-to guy now it seems for <laughs> for lots of light sails and solar sails i mean you you just spent most of the day in a meeting about this right i did indeed a review of an exotic uh, potential future concept of solar sailing i don't know that i am the go-to guy but i'm at least a guy who they can get <laughs> you are a go-to guy i'm sure of it i have a go-to telescope what's up there for me to look at Well, use your go-to telescope to look at Jupiter and Saturn in the evening sky in the east. Soon after sunset, uh, you can't miss them as Jupiter being the brightest object in the evening sky. Saturn over to its left looking kind of yellowish. And they'll look both, both look quite beautiful in your go-to telescope, Matt. 
I went out looking for the comet last night, Comet Neowise. It was too cloudy, once again. At least I got in that one uh, viewing. Uh, but it said it was still, at least last night, it was magnitude uh, 5, about 5.5, which is not bad, right? Kind of, sort of, but not really. <laughs> the, uh -huh. the trick is that theoretically with your eyes in a dark site, you can see to 6th magnitude, maybe even to 7th or beyond. Uh, but that's assuming that whole brightness is in a point source. Uh, the brightness they're giving you of the comet is spread out over an area in the sky. So it's much, 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 much harder to see a fifth magnitude comet than it is a fifth magnitude star. Uh, so it's tricky, but it is still uh, still hanging in there, uh, visible dimly in the northwest at the end of twilight. Uh, looked like an hour, hour and a half after sunset, uh, just as twilight's ending. But particularly, this would be a good time to pull out those binoculars uh, and use that. Get a sky chart online and then pull out the binoculars and you can check it out. Uh, it has moved where many in the southern hemisphere can conceptually see it as well. It's it's definitely fading. It's fading fast. Don't miss it. <laughs> yeah, just too many clouds and too much haze and, and too much city since uh, San Diego was between me and the comet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to make it tough, at least right, na right now. Uh, I did some serious suburban watching when it was brighter, but now it's getting tough. Good news is it's up higher uh, than it was, but the bad mm -hmm. news is it's dimmer. But if you don't see it, just turn around and check out Jupiter and Saturn, which are easy to see. And then coming up just a little bit later in the evening is Mars. And Mars, watch it get brighter over the coming weeks. Mars is already to play the magnitude game, minus one magnitude. Remember, smaller numbers are mm. brighter. And so it's actually approaching the brightness of Jupiter. It's not there yet, but it will be. It's certainly approaching the brightness of the brightest star in the sky uh, right now. But as it, we move towards October, we'll be getting closer to Mars in our orbit, and it will be getting brighter, and eventually it will get brighter than Jupiter for a little while. So check it out in the evening east, a little, little bit later in the evening. Pre-dawn, Venus still just dominant object over in the east, super bright. And to its lower left, you might be able to pick up Mercury, which is actually similar right now in brightness to, to Mars, but always hanging out down near the horizon. That would be the eastern horizon in the pre-dawn lower left of Venus. Be there. Oh, and one more thing, just as a preview, I'll mention it again next week, but we got the Perseid meteor shower coming up August 11th and 12th. <clears throat> Increased activity several days before and after. Uh, there'll be a quarter moon, so it won't be ideal, but it'll be good. I'll tell you more next week. A fine service you provide here every week. Why, thank you, Matt. So do you. We move on to this week in his... <laughs> Did you have a comment? <laughs> no, no. I'll, I'll let it Do lie. you have a comment? <laughs> I made my comment comment. Aha, this week in space history, 1971. First driving by humans in a car on the moon. Lunar roving vehicle, lunar rover. Apollo 15, 1971. 2007, Phoenix was launched on its way to the polar regions of Mars, and it would be a successful lander. I'm driving in my car. <laughs> where, where are you going? Uh, I'm going to that ridge over there. Okay. 
We move on to the Perseverance rover, speaking of driving, carries an anodized plate with the words explore as one in Morse code made to look like the rays of the sun. Hmm. So check it out in the pictures when you see the rover. I fiddled with it. It actually works. It's a little tricky to figure out, but then, then it all becomes clear. I would only be able to read it if it said SOS. It's the only Morse code I've ever known and probably ever will. <laughs> you, t- you don't want your rover saying SOS. Uh, no. All right. We, we move on to the trivia contest. We asked you about NASA exploration of comets. So ESA's Rosetta spacecraft studied a comet very successfully. But the question was, what and when was the last comet flyby encounter by a NASA spacecraft? How'd we do, Matt? Boy, did you catch a lot of people this time. (laughs) (laughs) Ben Drought, he got it right. He's not our winner. Sorry, Ben. Ben in Iowa said a sneaky question since the most recent flyby was not conducted by the most recent NASA Comet Explorer to be launched. But then I have come to expect nothing less from Dr. Betts. (laughs) Here is the poetic response from our Poet Laureate, Dave Fairchild. Stardust was a mission sent by NASA into space. It picked up dusty samples from a VILD-2 embrace, then headed off to intercept the comet Temple-1. Because when you work for NASA, friend, your job is never done. That is correct. Uh, yeah, it was sneaky. It was Stardust, uh, its second common encounter, and uh, Deep Impact also had a couple objects it checked out just to confuse matters. So uh, good job those who got it right. We had a lot of people, I mean a lot of people, who thought it was Deep Impact, or rather the Deep Impact Extended uh, Investigation. Dixie, uh, look to the heart of Dixie, as Bob Klain said. They were close, but it was Stardust. (laughs) Great tune, by the way. Thank you, Hoagie. Here's our winner, (laughs) Paul McEwen. Paul McEwen in Cleveland, Ohio. It has been over two years since Paul last won the contest. And uh, he did it with his naming of Stardust as uh, the being responsible for that last flyby by a NASA probe. Uh, there were a couple of people who mentioned Rosetta, but they knew that, you know, we were talking about the European Space Agency there. And of course, it wasn't a flyby. Paul, you've won yourself. Well, it's your choice. A Planetary Society 40th anniversary T-shirt. It, it is really cool. Or an equally cool vintage Planetary Society t-shirt, new made, though, with our original Clipper Ship logo. And uh, I'll be in touch, Paul. We'll find out what you'd like. Those are the same prize choices for this next contest that we'll be getting to in a moment. But first, here is another interesting approach to your question, Bruce. And it's from Connor Cottrell in Panama, the country of Panama. He said, on October 19, 2014, Comet C-2013A1 flew by Mars and the three NASA orbiters that were there at the time. Mm. Not bad, huh? Sort of a reverse no, that's, flyby. That's, that's, yeah, that's an interesting uh, take on it. Uh, I think that's good. I'll, I'll give you that. That's interesting. It was worth a mention. And finally, from Mark Dunning in Florida, thanks, Ort Cloud. I appreciate you, even if others don't. A little dig there at me, I think, Mark. Okay. We're ready for another contest. Haven't told you, Matt, but I've invented a new game for the trivia contest. Oh, no. (laughs) Be still my heart. 
<laughs> That's right. It's time for Theoretical Hypothetical Acronyms. Catchy <laughs> title, don't you think? I like this already. The stereo camera on the mast of the Perseverance rover is named Mast Cam Z because it is a mast-mounted camera with zoom capability. But here's my challenge for you. Make up what every letter would stand for if Mass Cam Z were actually an acronym. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest to give us your entry in the theoretical hypothetical acronym contest. Let's make this very clear for people. There are acronyms, including NASA and other space acronyms, which um, the acronym includes letters that are not the first letter in the words making it up. Will that be allowed or does it have to be the first letter? Or did you think of this? <laughs> I just assumed it's, it's always the first letter. No, I mean, if you, if, you can, if you can slam them together in some way, like use the M and the A in one word, that's one thing. But no, no ah. pulling, a, pulling an X out of the middle of a word. Well, that would okay. be ridiculous to pull an X out in the first place because it's not in Mass Cam Z. But no, uh, no, follow. You can get a little smushy with it, but not not way out of way out. Of- I like that. I like that laying out of the rules. You have until the fifth. That would be uh, Wednesday, August five, at eight a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer this time around. And uh, as I said, you get yourself uh, your choice of uh, brand new Planetary Society t-shirts, which uh, you can find, take a look at them in the Planetary Society store. You can either go to planetary.org slash store or go to the source, chopshopstore.com. That's where our store lives and they have all kinds of cool stuff there. All right, everybody go out there, look up the night sky and think about what name, what your name would create (laughs) if you had an anagram of it. Boy, that was complicated. Thank you and good night. An anagram, but I don't have an X in my name. He's Bruce Betts. He's uh, the chief scientist for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up X. You're an X-man to me. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who live everywhere on our planet and want to see us exploring other worlds. Is that you? Then join them at planetary.org slash membership. And thanks for leaving us a review or rating in Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or elsewhere. Mark Hilverde is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.